Good morning, everybody. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open it with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 is found on page 982 of the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, grab one of those Pew Bibles and please follow along with me. Today, we are going to talk about a secret. One of the key themes of this book of Philippians that we've been going through and that we've been highlighting repeatedly is the idea of forward progress in our spiritual lives. I mean, nobody wants to be stuck in neutral, spiritually speaking. We all want to be growing. We all want to be experiencing a dynamic of forward progress in our relationship with God. And God accomplishes this growth in us in a variety of ways. Sometimes growth is... Ordinary and sometimes it's extraordinary. Sometimes growth is exciting. Sometimes it's painful. And sometimes growth in a relationship with God happens in a slow and steady fashion. And almost every Christian I know goes through at least one specific temptation. And that temptation is related to our lifestyle. All of us are tempted (laughs) with the notion of thinking to ourselves or saying as we go down this growth path, I'm trying to follow God. I'm trying to do the right things. I'm trying to rely on Jesus. But shouldn't this mean that some of the material things in life should come just a little more easily for me? I mean, come on, God. Help me out. (laughs) I'm I'm trying to do my very best for you. Can't you just provide some of these things in the way that I want them? But as life goes on, we realize that this doesn't necessarily happen. And so I know the temptation. The temptation is if you don't see the desired results and if you don't see those results on your expected timetable, The temptation is to abandon the growth track that you are on. And this is particularly true when it comes to the physical realities that relate to our lifestyle. And so it's interesting, but it's not completely surprising that Paul gets to the end of this letter to the Philippians and he ends it with the secret to maintaining strength as you continue down this growth track in relationship with God. You know, a secret is something that is kept hidden or something that is private, something that is not adopted or known by many. And we all know that some secrets can be very harmful. Other secrets can be very helpful. But this secret, this secret to remaining strong will change your outlook on life. Because nobody wants to be weak. Everybody wants to be strong. But what we see here is how you can display the right type of strength as you continue to grow. So let's look at Philippians chapter 4. And please follow along as I start reading at verse 10. This is what it says. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. There is a secret strength in this life. And it is a secret that you can learn. Last week we talked about having the peace of God from the first part of Philippians chapter 4. And Philippians 4 encourages us that you can have the peace of God in your life when you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the gospel. He restores you to peace with God. And once you have peace with God, then you can begin to experience the peace of God in the pockets of your life as you allow him to reign. And so... When things get difficult, when things get worrisome, when things get anxious, Paul says, pray, rely on God. And that simple reminder that the peace of God rests where the God of peace reigns is something that we all need to be reminded of again and again as we look through the very difficult reality of life. But here in the second part of Philippians chapter 4, we see a continuation of this very same idea. As peace is expanded upon to address strength and contentment. Paul says, verse 12, look at it with me. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What he's saying is, is I have learned the secret to facing any physical circumstance in this life. Whether good or bad, whether rich or poor, whether up or down, I've learned the secret to facing the circumstances that lie before me. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret strength that he's talking about is really no strength of your own. But it is learning to rely on the strength that comes from the person of Jesus himself. And at first glance, I know how that might sound. I know that you say, well, strength coming from outside of me that is somehow applied to my life, well, that strength 
I mean, that, that sounds like, like a very distant reality for me. How am I supposed to draw on strength from another? And this is something that you learn, and it's manifested in your life in a variety of ways that we'll talk about in just a moment. But take a step back with me and take stock of your life as a Christian. Take stock of all of the things that come from outside of you, but that affect you dramatically. According to this book of Philippians, we see that righteousness itself is not something that's self-generated, but that it comes from Christ, chapter 3. We see that the most meaningful relationships in the life of the Christian are not something that is self-generated, that they come with those who are growing in Christ along with you, chapter 1. We see that the agenda for your life, if you're faithfully following God, is not something that's (laughs) self-generated. That the agenda for your life is actually something that comes from God and is given to you. And therefore, Paul says, I can, uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we see that true and lasting peace in your life is not something that's self-generated, but rather It is the peace of God, chapter 4. And so when Paul comes to the point of saying that strength is not self-generated, but that it comes from Christ, well, of course it does. I mean, one of the key themes to this whole book is that God is the giver of good gifts to his children, and he gives you absolutely everything that you need for life and faithfulness. And as we learn to rely on Christ for strength, no matter what the circumstances of life are, we trust in the provision of God and we learn to be content. And that's why he says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. True strength is displayed in contentment. True strength is displayed in contentment with God's supply. That's the secret. We often read Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And, And we think that strength is displayed in being victorious. We think that strength is displayed in hitting a home run. We think that strength is displayed in closing that business deal or in being a champion. But secret strength, true strength, is displayed in contentment with God's supply. And this contentment is something that we learn. And you can learn it. We see here in Philippians 4 that the secret to contentment is not normally learned in the circumstances of wealth, nor is it solely learned in the circumstances of having material need. But rather, contentment is learned in exposure to both. I mean, those who have only experienced plenty rightly ask how content they would be if they had to live with much less at their disposal. 
Those who have only experienced great material need rightly ask, if I fell into wealth, would that wealth corrupt me? (laughs) Or would I experience this tremendous sense of guilt for all the things that I have now that I didn't used to have? But look at me at verse 12. Paul says that true contentment is learned after experiencing both. He says, verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment is learned through both sets of circumstances because contentment is not based on the circumstances. So what he's saying is that through exposure to both, to plenty and to need, you see that neither one are the thing that is going to actually make you content in life. Philippians is a wonderful book at repeating to us that forward progress in the spiritual life is directly related to having a different set of lenses by which you view reality. When you adopt God's agenda for your life, your ideas about success and failure change. Your ideas about comfort and need change. Your ideas about strength and weakness change. I wonder if you are starting to look at the world through those lenses. Or are you still viewing your life strictly in terms of the nearsighted worldly realities that lie right in front of you. The battle is hard, isn't it? I mean, we have all been raised to be very good consumers, to pursue our happiness, our joy, our contentment by having more and doing more. But what Paul is saying that your contentment, your strength is is not based in those things. It's actually based in the lens of Christ himself. I wonder if you know the story behind the self-storage movement in the United States. In the 1960s, a man named Jim Noop was building apartments in the Bay Area of San Francisco And these apartments were naturally small. They were cramped. And they usually did not have garages attached to them. And the renters were often frustrated by the lack of space for all of their stuff. And as he soon noticed, it wasn't just renters in his apartment complexes that were having this problem, that were frustrated by lack of space. In fact, Most Americans in the 1960s were acquiring more possessions than their homes could ever hold. And so in 1970, he purchased a small piece of land in in Alameda and built California's first self-storage units. The people in California told Jim Noop that he was absolutely nuts. I mean, who would ever pay money just to use a 10 by 10 shed to store their stuff that they weren't probably going to use anyway. Nobody has that much stuff 
people said. In just two weeks, he rented out all the units. So he opened another self-storage in Berkeley, and then another in San Pablo, and then another in Vallejo, and then another in San Leandro, and then Foster City and Colma and Hayward. And soon Mr. Noop owned thousands of storage units up and down the coast of California, and he made millions of dollars simply giving people a place to store their stuff. Man, we sure like our stuff, don't we? There's over 50,000 storage units in our country right now because we like our stuff. But in so many ways, this just displays our weakness, doesn't it? I mean, the fact that more and more and more doesn't actually provide happiness that higher wages doesn't give satisfaction, that despite the fact that we live in the richest country in the history of the world, our weakness is displayed in that it never seems to be enough, and yet we always continue to pursue more. But secret strength is displayed in contentment. And so you see here these words in Philippians These loaded words, faith, contentment, and peace are all related. They're all related in the same family of words. Faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins ushers us into a relationship with an eternal God who is bigger than us and bigger than all of our desires. And once you begin to see him and know him, you begin to trust him. Your faith grows from a saving faith to an abiding faith, an ongoing active faith for your daily life. And in the previous section of Philippians, we talked about the peace of God in your life that you can have as you rejoice in the Lord, as you give thanks to God in prayer, and as you make all your requests known to him. Reliance on God in prayer allows the peace of God to be upon you. So faith (laughs) leads to peace. Peace of God. And the peace of God leads to strength as you trust Him more and you rely on Christ who strengthens you. And strength is actually displayed in contentment with all that God supplies. And so, this wonderful progression faith, peace, strength, contentment. And so, are you content? Or are you still seeking more material things? I mean, the battle is strong, isn't it? Not many understand this secret, and that's why not many people practice it. The secret of relying on the strength that Jesus provides, which you can learn it. You can. And when you do, you'll come to recognize that true strength is displayed in contentment with God's supply. It's interesting how this contentment advances to something else. And we see that in verses 14 through 23. The second thing that we see in this passage is that God uses people as vehicles for his supply. God uses people as vehicles for his provision. Look with me at verses 14 to 20. We see that It's interesting how when you come to a place of contentment, 
then you can actually move to another place, and that's the place of generosity. Some of us can live in that weird place of being only kind of content and being generous at the same time, but it's a lot easier to be generous after you've reached a place of ongoing contentment. And this place of generosity, generosity toward God and generosity toward other people, is magnificent in its effect. And many of the Philippians were already there. You see, prison in the ancient world was not like prison today. There was no tax dollars to pay for it. Whether under house arrest like Paul was or in a physical jail, those who were in prison relied on the generosity of friends and family to meet their practical needs. Food and clothing and companionship and, in Paul's case, even partnership. And so verse 15, Paul says that these Philippians themselves knew that when Paul began the ministry, when he left Macedonia, that no church entered into partnership with him in giving and receiving except for them. They met his needs again and again out of a place of generosity. And I tell you what, once you adopt a personal culture of generosity in your life, it's infectious. I mean, once you, once you move to a place where you say, I'm going to start being generous, and you really begin to own that, it's, it's almost like at times, like, well, well, now I want to be generous over here, and now I want to be generous over here. I want to be able to do more and give more and see the results of what happens in the midst of that generosity. And then your friends start to notice. And they say, well, well, she's being so generous. I wonder if I could be that generous too. And it grows into this sort of infectious culture of generosity. And notice the generosity that he's talking about here is not just sort of general generous expression. These Philippians are expressing gospel generosity. That is the specific, directed generosity to the growth of the gospel through people and ministry. Gospel generosity. A, a pastor colleague of mine talks about Christian giving and generosity this way. Every Sunday before their church would take up the offering, he would say something like this, and you've heard us say something like this from time to time as well. We worship a generous God, and we want to be a generous people. And so in our generosity, we first we give back to God in worship to him at least 10% of what he's given us and sometimes much more than that. Secondly, we set aside some money for savings because we don't want to live outside of our means. And thirdly, we live on the rest. And the order of that priority, we give first to God, we set a little bit aside for savings, and we live on the rest, captures these two realities very well, doesn't it? First of all, it captures contentment. We are content with what we have. We do not live outside of our means by accumulating all sorts of debt. Secondly, we're generous. We're generous actually to God and to God first through this gospel generosity. That approach to material contentment and Christian generosity is wonderful in the Christian life. And it's displayed through all kinds of people you know. And it's displayed through history from people that you don't. You know, there are a group of churches in northeastern India in the state of Mizoram. And they have this beautiful phrase to express the way that they give to God. Bufai Tam, they call it. 
which means one handful of rice at a time. Here's how it works. Families in the church set aside a portion of rice every meal for God. And when they collect enough rice, they donate it back to their local church, and the church then turns around and sells the rice to generate income. It's their way of taking up their tithes and offerings. And in 1914, over 100 years ago when this practice started, they used the sale of rice to raise about $1.50 in U.S. money. But lately, these Christians have been collecting approximately $1.5 million as they support the ministry of their local church and 1,800 missionaries throughout the country and even the world. People have also started giving in more creative ways, such as vegetables, firewood, other resources that flow into the church's outreach for the kingdom. One church leader puts it this way. He says, there are many ways of serving God. Some people do great things. Some people are great preachers. Some people contribute lots and lots of money. But when we talk about Bufai Tom, when we talk about a handful of rice, it's very humble. The service is done in the corner of the kitchen where nobody sees it. But God knows. And he blesses it. Another church member said this. It is not our riches or our poverty that make us serve the Lord. But it's our willingness. And so we Mizu people say, as long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give God every day. You know, the benefits of generosity are profound. And we can point to at least four, just right here in this text. Look with me at Philippians 4. We see that in the midst of generosity, Paul... The minister is encouraged. Verse 10, he rejoiced greatly in the Lord that they have revived their concern for him. Secondly, we see in the midst of generosity that Paul continues in contentment. Verse 18, he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Thirdly, we see in the midst of generosity that Paul is thankful for the growth of the gospel and of the giver as this partnership in the gospel grows. Look with me at verse 17. He said, not that I seek the gift, but the fruit that increases to your credit. In verse 18, the gifts are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Fourthly, we see in the midst of generosity that Christians can trust that God will continue to supply for their needs and that this supply comes from a storehouse that is so incredibly wealthy that only God himself has access to. Look with me at verse 19. God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Growing in generosity comes out of contentment. It benefits you. And it benefits the ministry of the gospel, and it benefits the expanse of God's kingdom, and these benefits are immense. True strength is displayed in contentment with God's supply. Bob Perks was at an airport 
when he overheard a father and a daughter in their last moments together. They had announced her departure, and standing near the security gate, they hugged, and the man said to his daughter, I love you. I wish you enough. She in turn said, Daddy, our life together has been more than enough. Your love is all I ever needed. I wish you enough too, Daddy. And they kissed and she left. And he walked over toward the window where I was seated. And standing there, I could see that he wanted and that he needed to cry. But I tried not to intrude on his privacy. But he welcomed me in by asking, Did you ever say goodbye to someone knowing that it would be forever? Yes, I have, I replied. And saying that brought back all kinds of memories that I had about expressing my love and appreciation to my dad for all he had done for me. And recognizing his days were limited, I took the time to tell him face-to-face how much he meant to me. So I knew what the man was experiencing. Forgive me for asking, but why is this a forever goodbye, I said. He said, I'm old, and she lives much too far away I have challenges ahead, and the reality is that the next trip back would be for my funeral, he said. When you were saying goodbye, I heard you say, I wish you enough. May I ask what that means? And he began to smile. That is a wish from another generation, he said. He paused for a moment, he looked up at the sky as if he were trying to remember in detail, and he smiled even more. He said, When we say, I wish you enough, we what we are saying is that we were wanting the other person to have a life filled with just enough good things to sustain them. And he continued, turning toward me, he shared the following as if he was reciting it from memory. He said, I wish you enough, son, to keep your attitude bright. I wish you enough rain to appreciate the sun more. I wish you enough happiness to keep your spirit alive, and I wish you enough pain so that the smallest joys in life appear much bigger. I wish you enough gain to satisfy your wanting, and I wish you enough loss to appreciate all that you possess. I wish you enough hellos to get you through the final goodbye. And he began to sob and he walked away. True strength is displayed in contentment in God's supply. And so my friends, I wish you enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that Jesus is the King. We celebrate that on this Palm Sunday and that his kingship is not like the kingships of this world, that he has not come to take, but that he has come to give and that he, in fact, gives us enough and more than enough. He meets our greatest needs and our intermediate needs and even our simple needs. And so I pray today that you would continue to allow us to know what it means to rely on the strength that he gives. 
and that this strength would be displayed in contentment. So hard for us. And so we ask that you would be generous and gracious in helping us. Amen.